All right, we have a lot to cover today. I have my expert panel guest with me, Donald McGovern. He's the author of Murder Orthodoxies, a non-conspiracy view of Marilyn Monroe's death. He is also the writer of the blog, Marilyn from the 22ndRow.com. And I'm going to encourage each and every one of you to log on to that site, because what we're going to be talking about today in detail, you can get a lot more details on this blog. And he goes into a lot of evidence like Gary Vitaco Robles and really breaking down for you what is true, what is a probable theory and what is an outlandish rumor. But we have a lot to cover. We have about 10 more tapes to get through today. So welcome back, Don. How you doing? Here we are to break down the rest of the tapes. I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for uh, having me back. <laughs> we left off at Fred Otosh's Cassette 33 in the Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, The Unheard Tapes. We've heard a lot of Fred Otosh in Marilyn documentaries and some of the articles and books that have been written. How credible is he? Uh, not very credible. He was a well-known muckraker who worked for the Gossip Magazine Confidential. And his primary function was to dig up compromising dirt about the sex lives of celebrities and their wives and people they knew. Uh, he was very disreputable. He was interviewed in 1973 on 60 Minutes by Mike Wallace. And after that interview, Wallace said that uh, Otash was the most amoral man he had ever interviewed. He was a convicted criminal. He was convicted of a conspiracy to defraud for financial gain. He offered bribes regarding horse racing, and he was convicted of doping a horse. Wow. Uh, he was just a very unsavory individual. And I have an FBI file where Otash tried to coerce a prostitute that he knew into a meeting with John Kennedy during which she would wear a wire and Otash would be able to gain information about the presidential candidate at that time that could be used before the election. So that's the kind of person that Otash was. And Dan Opp was one of his employees. So here's the thing that I, I find very interesting. You know, six decades later, there's these people that make these documentaries, write these books. Fred Otosh back in the day was certainly on the circuit, the media circuit himself. And yet none of this comes out. So if you were in the in a court proceeding, do you think that his testimony would have any weight? Yeah. No, it's all basically unproven. It's all hearsay. Uh, in 60 years, and none of these alleged secret tapes have ever surfaced. And I can't imagine if anybody had those that they wouldn't have capitalized them already. We're talking about tapes that would be worth a fortune. Oh, a fortune. And I have to say, Don, when we first started the Good Night Maryland radio podcast, the initial podcast that we launched this investigation, I went out and asked people, if anybody has any tapes or any evidence, please come forward. No one ever has. And they always say, oh, they got destroyed. Well, who says? They got destroyed. By who? And where's the evidence that they got destroyed? Summers says that possibly the tapes were confiscated by law enforcement. Uh, that's basically a hypothesis. But in 1966, the um, New York authorities raided the home of Bernard Spindell, who kind of appears in this documentary what Otash says is, and someone wired up Maryland's house on behalf of Hoffa. And there's a photograph flashed on the screen at this time that is of Bernard Spindell. Summers does not say that, but Spindell was Hoffa's ally. 
the authorities in New York State confiscated Spindell's tapes and all of his files and listened to them. In 1982, the Los Angeles County District Attorney contacted the New York DA, and the New York DA told them that the investigators had listened to the tapes, and none of the tapes contained anything relating to Marilyn Monroe. They also told the L.A. authorities that Spindell was a known boaster and frequently alluded to having knowledge of a number of secrets. I've read both memoirs written by Spindell and written by Otash. What was your take on reading those two books? Well, Spindell doesn't even mention Marilyn at all. Uh, His book was called The Ominous Ear, and Otash's memoir, I can't remember the name of it now, Operation Hollywood or something like that. He mentions the wrong door raid that involved DiMaggio, Sinatra, and Barney Ruditsky, you know, the one where they were trying to catch Marilyn in bed with a lover, and they went into the wrong apartment. That's the only thing that Otash mentions. Yeah, I think the book was called Investigation Hollywood. Otash claimed that he had written a book called uh, Marilyn, Bobby Kennedy, and Me. But that manuscript has never appeared. It's never been published. So you have to ask, why is that so? Why is this manuscript never seen the light of day? I find it kind of funny that considering the unsavory nature of these people, Otash, Spindell, Ruditsky, various others that are involved in Marilyn's case, why do people believe them? the testimony and the statements of people that are known liars. So let's go to cassette 18B. This is Angie Novello. Now we're starting to get into who was Bobby Kennedy's secretary at the time. So tell us a little bit about her and why do you think she was on this documentary? She was included to prove that Marilyn and Bobby Kennedy were telephone buddies, which is not a secret. That's pretty well known. But the interesting thing about it is, is that the mythology around this telephone relationship has always been that once Bobby Kennedy and Marilyn became romantically involved, that RFK gave her a private number to call. That's always been accepted. That's what's always been put forth. But if you check the phone records, she didn't call a private number. She called the DOJ switchboard RE78200. So if she had a private telephone number, why didn't she use it? The other thing is, is that these phone calls were relatively short. Marilyn Monroe was fired from the set of Something's Gotta Give. She was let go by Fox at the time when she was just right after Happy Birthday, Mr. President. They were not happy with her. The reality is she needed to negotiate her Fox contract. And couldn't it have been that she was eliciting the help of Bobby Kennedy? Well, I think initially she may have done that, but that necessity was negated when Dean Martin flat refused to make the movie with any other actress. And then Daryl Zanuck intervened and basically took back control of 20th Century Fox and told everybody involved to resolve this issue because he knew losing Marilyn Monroe and firing Marilyn Monroe was a terrible mistake on Fox's part. Just so we can move on, we have a cassette that is Natalie Trundy. And tell us who Natalie Trundy is. Natalie Trundy was, at the time, the fiance of Arthur Jacobs. They ultimately married. And she was an actress that was involved with Arthur Jacobs. And Arthur Jacobs, just for people that may not know who that was, that was Marilyn's publicist, and it was the agency that represented her at the time. He became a producer of movies. He produced 
all of the Planet of the Apes movies. In fact, Natalie starred in three of them, I believe. Her record is what? Well, I don't know too much about her. You either accept her testimony or you don't. There's no way to verify it. I mean, by the time Summers interviewed Natalie, Arthur Jacobs had already died. What Natalie's testimony does, the important thing is that it indicates that Marilyn was already in distress around 11, 11.30 or midnight. I don't think she ever actually says the exact time. She didn't have any details either. She never, Jacobs never told her anything about what he saw at Fifth Helena. Yeah, because Natalie admitted to Donald Spoto that Jacobs never provided any details, commenting only that it was too dreadful to discuss. (laughs) And so, that's all he ever said. We don't really know what time Jacobs went to Fifth Helena. We don't know. We have an idea based on what Natalie testified to, and maybe she was confused. For sure. I think based on Marilyn's autopsy and her liver temperature at 1030 on Sunday morning, which was, I think, 89 degrees Fahrenheit, she more than likely died around 12 midnight or 1230 a.m. on Sunday. Let's pivot to that wonderful ambulance uh, cassette. It was 126A. Ken Hunter and Walt Schaefer Tell us a little bit about these tapes and what is true and what is not. What's interesting about the testimony of Summers is that he uses Ken Hunter in an attempt to prove that Marilyn was transported to a hospital. But if you really dig into the ambulance theory, Ken Hunter actually debunked that theory. The person who called the Los Angeles district attorney was not Ken Hunter. It was a fellow by the name of James Hall, who initially reported to the investigators with the DA's office that his name was... Um, Rick Stone. Right. He gave an <laughs> alias. Yeah. And then he finally admitted that his name was James Hall. And he wanted to know if the LADA would pay for testimony concerning Marilyn Monroe's death. Yeah. And the reality is that we already know that Marilyn had already passed. Also, if the mystery of Marilyn Monroe and the documentary really wanted to play a lot of the tapes that from people that were credible, they were already talking about how Peter Lawford was called at three or four o'clock in the morning and told the news that Marilyn had passed. You know, rigor mortis had already set in. She had been dead for several hours. She would have been dead several hours by 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. But also, if the ambulance arrived between 4 and 6, where was Jack Clemens? Clemens never said anything about an ambulance. Before we move on from this, I want to point out one important thing about this documentary, and that is the tape recording that Summers plays of Ken Hunter was not an interview that Summers held. It was an interview with Al Tomich with the DA's office, and the tape has been edited What he says, or or the portion that appears in the documentary, is just a small fragment of what Ken Hunter says. I won't go through it, but that's something that everybody needs to try to seek out. And you can find it on the Internet, the actual recording and what Ken Hunter tells Al Tomich about that encounter. That tape has been edited. So that raises the question, are there other tapes that have been edited? Man, this story, it gets more and more complicated as you go along. In fact, Ken Hunter says that the police were there and they would not let them take Marilyn's corpse because it is against the law in California for an ambulance to transport a corpse. 
Yeah, so the coroner was called. So the coroner arrived. Well, actually, it was it was the Hockets from the cemetery that came and collected Marilyn's body. Because also in California, that standard practice that was standard practice in '62. If there was no crime, if there was no evidence of a crime, they generally called the cemeteries to come get her. And that cemetery where Marilyn is buried also has a mortuary. And that's wow. who came and got her, Don and Guy Hockett. So let's go to cassette 18A, Bill Woodfield. Woodfield was a photographer who photographed Marilyn on this. He said of something's got to give. Allegedly, in 1962, Woodfield and another photojournalist by the name of Joe Hyams, along with a retired policeman that they hired, did some investigating in the circumstances surrounding Marilyn's death. Beginning on August the 5th, according to Woodfield, he uncovered a helicopter log when he visited Hal Connor's helicopter service, which was a service frequently used by Peter Lawford and other celebrities which indicated that Bobby Kennedy had been picked up at Peter Lawford's house and delivered to an airport, the L.A. airport. Uh, The problem with this story is, number one, the log has never been seen. It's never been published. The only person who's ever seen this log is Bill Woodfield. But then when you read Goddess, what Summers actually says is that the helicopter landed on the beach to collect a passenger. That's the word he uses, a passenger. That does not say that the helicopter landed on a beach to pick up Robert Kennedy. But I want to point out something else, too, that's important to keep in mind here. When you compare the 1985 version of Goddess with the 2012 version of Goddess, the testimony of Bill Woodfield is totally different. I want to read to you what it, what it is. In 1985... Summers reported that Woodfield said the time in the log was sometime after midnight, I think between midnight and two in the morning. The booking is a blur in my memory now, but it was definitely in the name of either Lawford or Kennedy. And I find the use of the word definitely a little odd considering Woodfield was nowhere near definite. But then if you go to 2012 and you read that testimony, here's what Summers reported. Here's what Woodfield said. The time in the log was sometime after midnight, I think between midnight and two in the morning. It showed clearly that a helicopter had picked up Robert Kennedy at Santa Monica Beach. Well, the difference between those versions and what Summer says Woodfield said is radical. It's radically different, and there's no explanation regarding why. And let's move on to cassette 28. Reed Wilson, who is this person, and why does he make such a big claim? Well, Reed Wilson is an, is an investigator uh, that testified to Summers that um, Bobby Kennedy came to Los Angeles on August the 4th and didn't really visit Marilyn that night, but telephoned her from Peter Lawford's house. And that's basically what he testified to. Well, that raises an interesting question raised earlier. Why would he fly all the way from Gilroy to Los Angeles just to telephone Marilyn? Couldn't he have just telephoned her from Gilroy? There's more proof that Bobby Kennedy was in Gilroy than he was in in Los Angeles, especially why in the world would anybody, particularly a high-level politician, be in Los Angeles in the middle of the night when Marilyn Monroe was already had already passed. There's irrefutable proof that Bobby Kennedy was in Gilroy, and there's no proof, <laughs> actual proof, that he was in Los Angeles. 
So let's jump to Jim Doyle, because that 106. Uh, Jim Doyle was an FBI agent who actually became an organized crime specialist. He received special training at Quantico, Virginia. He spent most of his career in Indiana and Illinois, later in Nevada, New Mexico. According to his opiate, Jim's FBI stories with the likes of Frank Sinatra, JFK, William Randolph Hearst, and Marilyn Monroe, to name a few, could be made into movies. But the interesting thing about Doyle's testimony is that he talks about documents being removed. Summer says to Doyle, as far as actual records being removed, you were aware of that from your colleagues. And Doyle answers, oh, yeah, this happened. But that's hearsay. Doyle admits he didn't see any documents being removed. He just heard that from his colleagues. Okay, point one. But then later on in his testimony, he makes some rather incredible statements. He says to Summers, I was there at the time when she died. That's an assertion that I can only interpret one way, that when Marilyn Monroe died, Jim Doyle was there. He was inside the hacienda. But Summers doesn't pursue that statement. He doesn't ask any questions about it. And then Doyle goes on to say there were some people there that normally wouldn't have been there. And he's talking about agents or bureau people. But once again, Summers does not question Doyle. He doesn't ask him who was there. Was J. Edgar Hoover there? Was Clyde Tolson there? Who was there? We don't know. But not only that, uh, Summers asks Doyle when these bureau people arrived, and he answers remarkably before anybody even realized what had happened. Now, that is one of the most remarkable statements I've ever heard about the night of Maryland's death. And Summers doesn't pursue it. How could agency people have been there before anybody even realized what had happened? Were they, did they know Maryland was going to commit suicide? Yeah, in our last day of Marilyn Monroe in our dramatic series, you really get a a sense of what that day entailed. And everybody thinks it's so tantalizing. And most of the day was actually kind of pretty boring and nonchalant. I mean, she was gardening. She was in a bad mood. There was a lot of things happening, but it was not like any other day that you and I would have had as well. So to, again, make these insertions, I want to say to the audience, there's absolutely no proof only hearsay about all these FBI criminologists, you know, law enforcement, men in suits, whatever it is, being at Marilyn Monroe's. There's absolutely no proof. And if you have it, come forward. (laughs) Yeah, and it's very interesting that Summers, considering this is supposed to be a documentary, trying to get to the facts. Summers doesn't pursue the line of questioning that I think what Doyle said should have generated. There should have been a hundred questions asked about this, what he said. I think the the strange thing about this story, the questions I would ask today, I didn't ask five or six years ago when we did our first initial podcast because I didn't have enough information to know what I don't know, sort of speak, right? So well, yeah, Marilyn's to- life is very complicated. The the story of her life is complex and the story of her death has its own set of complexities. And most people don't have the time to dig into it. But unfortunately, 60 years of falsehoods have been piled on falsehoods after falsehoods after falsehoods. And therefore, it's difficult to dig through all of the details to get to what is actually the truth. I know. And it really, I mean, it is complicated and it's very time consuming. So let's go to the last tape. 
a very interesting person. One that if her mind could talk, we'd probably know the truth. Cassette 93B, Eunice Murray. Let's talk about her. She was introduced into this documentary and obviously a main figure that night who is the housekeeper of Marilyn Monroe. Eunice has testified or testified after Marilyn's death several times in several interviews, and she contradicted herself many times. The general use of Eunice has been, was Bobby Kennedy there on August the 4th? She says yes occasionally, and she says no occasionally. So how do you accept what Eunice says, considering she actually never told a consistent story? Well, and here's the thing. We do know, I think Gary even talked about this, that Bobby Kennedy had visited Marilyn Monroe at her house, just wasn't August 4th. Bobby Kennedy arrived with the Lawfords on, I think it's the 27th of June. Yes. For a visit, a brief visit, a drink before they went to a dinner party at the Lawfords' house. And it's quite possible, I think, that Eunice conflated that visit with August the 4th. But not only that, Eunice has been described as a person who often said what she thought the people around her wanted to hear. And she even admitted that she said sometimes what she thought sounded best. Yeah, and she Um, was very meek, so she didn't really speak with authority. So I think being able to please other people in terms of her story certainly came through from interview to interview. Um, But I think that's also, Dawn, and this is the challenge with the Marilyn Monroe case, is that there's a lot of people saying one thing and then saying another, and that lends itself to conspiracy theories. That lends itself to people questioning, well, wait a minute, what is the truth here? And that becomes the challenge because then people start to make up what their beliefs are. And I just want to point out again, a belief isn't a truth. A belief isn't a fact. <laughs> it's just a belief. And so well, Eunice-, now, Eunice Murray was interviewed by Maurice Zolotal in 1973. And she said that the stories about Marilyn and Robert Kennedy were the most evil gossip of all. And she also said it is not true that Marilyn had a secret love affair with Mr. Kennedy. And I would tell you if it were so. Then she added, Marilyn certainly didn't go sneaking around with Mr. Kennedy and have a love affair with him. And Zolotal asked her directly if Bobby Kennedy was in the house that Saturday night. And she answered a firm, no, he was not. And he asked her about Peter Lawford and Pat Newcomb. Were they there? Eunice said, no, absolutely not. There was nobody in the house that night except me and Marilyn. The doors were locked. The gate was shut. The windows locked. The French window in her room locked. But then in 83, with the arrival of Anthony Summers, according to Summers, she told a completely different story. Vernon Scott interviewed Milt Evans. And according to that interview, Evans said that Bobby definitely was not in Southern California that night. And neither man, meaning Lawford or Kennedy, went to Maryland's house. He said, how could Bobby be in town that night? He was in Northern California with his wife and children. Oh, a a really important interview with Eunice. She was interviewed by a magazine that was a new magazine at that time, Picture Week, a new weekly publication by Time. She said that once in a while, everything becomes confused. I am confused. So I think it's clear that you can't accept what Eunice says. You just can't accept it. 
Well, I think the thing is, and this is the challenge with the Eunice Murray testimony and interviews that she's given over the years, she is confusing. The way that she speaks doesn't feel like she's coming from an authoritative place when she speaks. She's also changed her story. And so that creates people questioning, well, then what is the truth? Well, it's a complicated subject, and I want to say one final word. Summers tape-recorded 650 interviews, according to him. He made 1,000 interviews, and he tape-recorded 650. This Netflix film included a mere 27 of those interviews. How do we know what's on the remaining? We don't. And according to Gary, here's what he told me. In Netflix, Summers omits interviews which contradict the interviews he chose to include. He uses interviews to support Kennedy with at Peter Lawford's house in August 4th. However, he interviewed all of Lawford's guests that night and all reported Kennedy was not there. The one thing you have to take into consideration that what's being called a documentary because of information and evidence that was omitted, particularly the evidence that Kennedy was in Northern California in Gilroy, it cannot be considered a documentary. The other thing is, is that because all of the tapes were not actually heard, again, you are then creating a story in which you want people to follow. And it makes for a good story, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the truth. And so those are the tapes based on the Anthony Summers goddess book, Uh, say goodbye to the president. These producers obviously produced a story around a lot of innuendos. You have the cassette tapes, you know what is true. I'm going to, again, say go to Marilyn from the 22ndrow.com and learn more about some of these details that Don and I have spoken about today. You know, Don, we still haven't gotten to the complete truth. I don't know if we'll ever get to the truth. And my last question to you is, do you think that people do want to know the truth? I question whether they want to know the truth. I think the truth is out there. I think what I've written is the truth or as close to the truth as I could get. I think what Gary Vitaco Robles has written is the truth. But the question is whether or not people will ever be exposed to it. And if they're exposed to it, will they actually accept it? Because I think people do like the sensationalism and they do like the stories of Marilyn and the Kennedys. And it's unfortunate. So I think that's a good way to wrap. Now for you, the listener, you can now take it and you can dig a little deeper. And I'm going to invite all of you that whether it's the Marilyn Monroe story or another story that's out in the news, question, is this true? Is this plausible? Before we start acting as if everything that everybody says is always a fact. So I'd like to thank you, Donald McGovern, for being with us this season and for helping us specifically break down the Netflix documentary for people to help them understand the story of Marilyn Monroe. I'd like to thank all of you for this wonderful season. Randall and I will be back next week just to wrap everything up for this season. Hope you'll join us. I'd like to thank the whole expert panel, Donald McGovern, Gary Vitaka Robles, and April Chambers. All of these people are credible Maryland experts. I'm going to invite all of you to make sure that the people that you're following are the people that have written very factual books. And just because you say that you're writing a fact doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. Do your homework. A special thanks to all of you from all of us. And as Marilyn would say, 
hold a good thought. So let's hold a good thought, not only for Marilyn, but for yourself.